Hi, and welcome to another one of the Branch Online Sermons. Most of us, I think, enjoy getting something new, a new pair of pants, a new t-shirt, a new crocheted Yoda. One of the key reasons that we enjoy getting new things is because new things are often better. It's not always true, but it often is. New cars are more efficient than old cars. New clothes aren't falling apart like old clothes. And the basic conviction of the Bible is that what God has done in Jesus is better than what God did in the Old Testament leading up to Jesus. It's not that the old was bad or that it failed, that God's plan failed in some way, but it's that what God has done in Jesus is better. The old was good, but what Jesus has done is better. And it's not just that we can now dismiss the old and just sort of move on with our lives, but rather by understanding the old, we can appreciate even more just how great what God has done in Jesus really is. And that's what we're thinking about in today's sermon. We'll be seeking to understand why the new thing that God has done in Jesus is better than what God had done before Jesus. We're going to be looking today at Hebrews chapter 8 through to the beginning of 10. And we'll be reading bits of that as we go along. But if you haven't read chapter 8 yet, it'd be helpful to stop the video now and to read chapter 8. Well, if you watched the sermon last week, you might remember that in chapter 7, the writer explained how the high priesthood of Jesus was better than the priesthood in the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus is better than those priests because he's perfect, he's obedient to the Father, and he's able to enter into uh, the presence of the Father and represent us. But having explained how the priesthood of Jesus is better, the writer now goes on to explain how, to kind of zoom out if you like, and to explain how the whole system uh, of what God has done in Jesus is better than uh, the whole system that God had established uh, in the Old Testament uh, temple system. So the writer says in verse 7, For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. The first covenant that he's talking about is the covenant that God made with the people through Moses uh, at Mount Sinai after he rescued them from the land of Egypt. A covenant, you might remember, is an oath-bound relationship. Apparently, there was something wrong with that relationship that God had with the people. And in verse 8 and 9, the writer explains exactly what that problem was by quoting an Old Testament prophecy uh, through the prophet Jeremiah. Look at verse 9. Jeremiah says, The problem was, they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. So the problem was that although God had rescued the people, brought them to himself, and established this new relationship with the people, they weren't faithful to God. The people weren't faithful to God. So instead, God foreshadows through Jeremiah uh, this relationship founded on better promises, this new relationship founded on better promises. So verse 10, this is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds 
and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Throughout the opening chapters of Hebrews, we've been warned not to be like Old Testament Israel, uh, who turned away from God and then God turned away from them. But how do we do that? How do we make sure that we don't turn away from God? God gives us the answer to that in these middle chapters of the book of Hebrews. And the answer that he gives us is the gospel, or what he calls the new covenant, the new and better promises of the new covenant brought about through Jesus. Jesus promises to establish a relationship with us uh, that we won't turn away from. Uh, He'll write the law on our hearts so that we remain faithful to him. In other words, the way that we ensure that we don't turn away from God uh, and live as an almost a Christian or, or to turn away from the gospel entirely, the way that we make sure we don't do that, ironically, is through the gospel itself. We don't need to add something to the gospel. Rather, we just need to hang on to the good news that we've already been given. Because in the gospel, God promises to bring us into a relationship with him in which we won't turn away from him. So you might, at this moment, be sorely tempted to give up on the gospel. You might feel more and more that it's just too hard. It's too difficult to keep fighting against sin. You might look at all your non-Christian friends and think that they seem to be living a pretty good life without God, and maybe you could do that too. It might not be that you're thinking that you'll completely give up on God, but the idea of just kind of stepping away, just putting God on the shelf a bit, seems kind of attractive. Just tempering things down. Just pushing God out to the corner, out of harm's way, where he won't interfere. It just seems like a good idea to you. Or maybe your Christian faith and trust in God is just too time-consuming. It's been so nice, maybe, through this pandemic to sit at home, to not have to go to church, to not have to meet with other Christians, to not be challenged or challenge others, to just be able to push God out of your mind a bit and get on with life. And maybe you're just tempted to kind of keep going on in that kind of vein, just to keep God a bit at arm's length. You might be tempted at the moment to completely close your heart off to God. Maybe you've grown up in a Christian home. Uh, Maybe you used to have time for God. Uh, You used to uh, try to follow God. You used to uh, seek to trust in Jesus, but but now actually you really couldn't care less. Uh, And so day by day, you're just hardening yourself more and more to God and turning away from the gospel. Well, the remedy to all those things, in fact, is to dig deeper into the gospel. The remedy to that temptation to turn away is to 
confess your sins to God and turn to God and admit your struggle openly to God. He already knows what you're tempted to do. Admit those thoughts, admit your waywardness, and then cling on to Jesus. Ask God to do what he's promised, to unite you with Jesus through the Holy Spirit. You see, the solution to our drifting away from the gospel, the solution to living in ongoing sin and rejection of God is to embrace the gospel, to to make really sure that we have actually embraced the gospel, to make sure that we're part of that new covenant, to make sure that we've really taken hold of Jesus through genuine repentance and faith, and to keep holding on to him. So chapter 8 tells us how the new covenant is better than the old. Uh, It won't be like the old in that those who belong to Jesus won't turn away from him, and he won't turn away from them. The reason that God won't turn away from them, the writer says in verse 6, is because the new covenant or the gospel is founded on better promises. The two promises of the new covenant are writing the law on uh, the heart and forgiveness. In chapter 10, verse 16 and 17, the writer repeats those two promises again. Uh, He repeats that quotation again from Jeremiah. And if you like those two quotations from Jeremiah, one in chapter 8 and one in chapter 10, are like bookends uh, of this whole discussion. And in the middle, what he's doing is explaining the new covenant. He's explaining it in more detail. And he does that first in chapter 9 by using the design of the temple as a picture of those two covenants. The writer says at the beginning of chapter 8 that the whole religious system of the temple and sacrifices and priests was a shadow of something greater. It was like a scale model of something better. And in chapter 9, he explains how that is. So read with me from chapter 9, verse 1 to 8. The writer says, Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up in its first room with a lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people, which they had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. The writer says in verse 9 that all of that was a parable or an illustration of a deeper truth. He says that the tabernacle, or later the temple, was divided into two sections. The first section was the holy place, and into that section the priests could go every day to serve before God. 
The second section behind the first was the most holy place and only the high priest could enter there and then only once a year on the day of atonement. If you like the the, the, the most the, or the holy place rather, uh, the holy place represented a kind of access to God. The, the priest could come relatively close to God, but not too close, while the most holy place represented the immediate presence of God. That was a place where uh, God met with the high priest. But what you need to understand is that those terms first and second are loaded terms here in this section of Hebrews. The, the writer has just used those terms to describe the two covenants. So in chapter 8, he describes the old and the new covenant, also using the term first and second covenant. So what the writer is saying is that the first section of the tabernacle represented the situation of the people of God under the first covenant or the old covenant, the covenant through Moses. Under the first covenant, the people had a kind of access to God, but it was limited. God came and dwelled among them in the temple, but God was still distant. But under the second covenant, or the new covenant, God's people are brought into the very presence of God. Uh, the reason why the first covenant couldn't bring people into the presence of God is then explained by the writer and what he says next in verses 9 and 10. He says, this is an illustration that uh, set up of the tabernacle and the temple. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. The problem was that the gifts and sacrifices that the people were bringing couldn't clear the conscience of the worshipper. Now, when we hear the language of clear the conscience, we tend to think in terms of our guilty feelings being taken away. We feel bad about something that we've done in the past and what we want is for those feelings of guilt to be taken away. Under that understanding of that expression, the thing that keeps us from God, from the presence of God, is our feelings of guilt or shame. But that's not really what the writer is talking about. That's not what clearing the conscience means. The conscience in the thinking of the writer of Hebrews is not the place, first and foremost, where we feel guilty or at peace. Rather, the conscience is the seat of our consciousness. It's the place from which we make decisions and judge actions, both before the event and even after we make them. In fact, the conscience here in these chapters 9 and 10 of Hebrews really stand in for the heart that's mentioned in chapter 8 in that quotation from Jeremiah. So to clear or actually rather perfect the conscience means to make the heart pure, to write God's law on the heart so that we do it. And that's true in every place where the conscience is mentioned in these chapters chapters in chapters 9 and 10. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, uh, the Old Covenant could not uh, cleanse the conscience, it could not perfect the heart or, or the conscience of the worshipper. But what those rituals couldn't do, 
God has done through Jesus. So look at chapter 9, verse 11 to 14. But when Jesus Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, it is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? One thing that I've noticed in coming to Tassie is that people here are constantly taking off their shoes when they visit people's homes. I've lived in a few states and territories in Australia, uh, and nowhere else was taking off shoes such a big thing as it is here in Tassie. But the reason that people take their shoes off when they visit somebody's home is that they don't want to get mud in the house. They don't want to wreck the house. And in the same way, the temple was kind of a picture of God's house, a picture of God's dwelling place. And in order to enter God's house, we need to do something more than just take off our muddy shoes. We need to be completely cleaned up. We need the sin and the rebellion against God that lives in our hearts to be wiped away so that we can stand before God, so that we can stand before God without being wiped out. But that kind of cleaning operation is not one that you and I can do ourselves. We can't just take off our shoes. We can't just put on new clothes. We can't just jump in the shower. We need God to do something supernatural by reaching into our hearts and taking out the evil that lives there and replacing it with his good, holy and perfect will. And the writer of Hebrews says that's what God has promised to do through Jesus. That's what he's begun to do, and that's what he'll finish when Jesus comes again to gather the people who trust him. The new covenant or the gospel promises that God will utterly transform us to be like Jesus. He'll write his law in our hearts. He begins that now when we come to Jesus and he promises absolutely that he will finish what he has begun. The promise of actual change and victory over sin that begins now, that promise is, that begins now and ends in eternity, that promise is really good news. But it's actually good news that often doesn't get the headlines. Think how good that news is for people whose lives are marred not just by what they've done, but by who they continue to be. Think of the recovering drug addict or alcoholic, or the person who keeps getting angry, or the person who keeps being greedy and eating too much, or the person who keeps being selfish. Think about how good that news is of being transformed For the proud or the bitter or the jealous, the lazy, the despondent, the anxious, the self-reliant. Think how good it is to know that one day the struggle against sin will be over. The sin that lives in us will no longer be there. No unclean thing will ever enter our minds. But not only will that be true one day, even now that 
Hope of victory over sin is pressing into our hearts and lives through the Holy Spirit. What God has promised to finish, he's already beginning to work out. Too often the gospel that we preach and that we share with others stops at the cross. But while the good news of the new covenant includes the cross, it includes forgiveness, its crowning glory is the power of a new life in Christ and a life lived to the glory of God. So the new covenant is better than the old because those who belong to Jesus won't turn away from him and he won't turn away from them. The new covenant is better than the old because Jesus' death cleanses us in a way that the Old Testament cleansing rituals uh, never could. Finally, the writer goes on uh, and explains the other foundational promise of the gospel. In fact, the more foundational promise of the gospel on which that cleansing and washing is based, and that is the promise of forgiveness, the gift of forgiveness. In chapter 8, the writer quotes Jeremiah as saying that God will light, write the law on his people's hearts for or because I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. In other words, this new relationship with God is grounded first and foremost in forgiveness. The same idea is in chapter 9, verse 15, which says, For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In order for the new covenant to take effect, the old covenant has to be put away. People have to be, had to be ransomed from the sins committed under that covenant, not least ransomed from the sin of completely despising and turning their back on God and that covenant. But the writer says that now Jesus has come, he has done that. He has died to ransom people from that first covenant and provide a better way. Think again of that illustration of the temple or the tabernacle. The first section or the first covenant blocked the way into the second section or into the second covenant, into the very presence of God. But now in Jesus' death, that whole covenant through Moses, that whole first section that was blocking the way has been demolished. It's been torn down so that we can enter straight into the presence of God through that new covenant, through the covenant in Jesus Christ. The writer explains that in chapter 9, verse 16 to 27. You might like to read uh, that with me now. It says, In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. 
It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. You might remember when we looked at Exodus last year that in Exodus 24, God made a covenant with the people. And when he made that covenant, Moses sprinkled the books of the law and the people with blood. He was doing that as a way of saying that the covenant was established on the basis of God's forgiveness through sacrifice. But the sacrifices and the cleansing had to keep being repeated because the people kept falling into sin. The people kept disobeying and breaking the covenant. If you like, the covenant had to keep being reinstituted and everything had to keep being re-cleansed because sin kept going on and on and on. But Jesus has died not again and again every year and everything all over again every time. Jesus has died once and for all, once and for all to establish a new relationship between us and God. Jesus, once and for all atoning death, forms the absolute basis of our new relationship with God. It says in chapter 10, verse 14, For by one sacrifice... Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. By his one sacrifice, Jesus has redeemed us, ransomed us, gained us a perfect status before God, and nothing can take that away. We're perfect forever if we belong to Jesus, if we have entrusted ourselves to him. But by that work of Jesus, not only are we perfect forever, do we have that status of being perfect forever, we're also being made holy. That is, God is working in us through the Holy Spirit what he has already reckoned us to be in Jesus. That perfect status through Christ, through his atonement, allows us to enter into the presence of God and allows God to come and dwell in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And the presence of God in us enables us to be transformed into the image of Jesus. Well, if you have, trans, if you have entrusted yourself uh, to Jesus, then you are now perfect forever. And that will show itself now in you being transformed into the image of Jesus. And that status of perfect or righteous is not something that can be taken away by your sin. It's not that God is blind to your sin or my sin. It's not that our sin can't grieve God and disrupt our relationship with him. Rather, it's that our status as God's children can never be taken away. God's promise can never be taken back. Our inheritance in Jesus can never be lost. 
Sometimes the sin in your life might make you despair of God's grace. It might make you think that God will abandon you. But the marvel of the gospel is that it's not the presence of sin in your life that matters. But it's how you respond to it. Do you put up with it? Do you indulge it and sort of caress it? Do you despair over it and give up hope over it? Or do you dump that sin again at the foot of the cross, turn away from it, and keep hanging on to Jesus? God's promise is in the new covenant is that if we come to God through Jesus Christ, he forgives our sin, makes us perfect forever in his sight, and begins to change us now through the work of the Holy Spirit, a work that he will complete when Jesus comes to judge the living of the dead. And we can be assured of that because of the certainty of God's word of promise through Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that uh, what you have uh, done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ is so much better uh, than what you had had done before Jesus. Lord, thank you that even what you did in the Old Testament was wonderful. Thank you that uh, it was a ministry of your grace, uh, that you came to the people, that you made yourself known to them, that you dwelt among them uh, in the temple, that you provided a, a sacrificial system uh, to, to, to show them the, the truth of the gospel, uh, to, to, to map out for them the, the way back to you, uh, to point them towards the future coming of Jesus. But Lord, we thank you so much that in our day, Jesus has come, that those sacrifices are no more, that Jesus has made a once-for-all sacrifice, and that through that, if we entrust ourselves to him, if we take hold of Jesus by faith, that sacrifice avails for us. And you see us as perfect, righteous and holy, set apart for you. And Lord, that reality, that promise, that status is beginning to work its way out in our lives. As through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit, uniting us with him, you are transforming us more and more every day into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, please help us to hang on to those great and precious promises in the gospel. Lord, we ask that none of us would turn away from those truths, either by hardness of heart, by abandoning the gospel altogether, or Lord, by turning to sin and embracing sin uh, and living a life of sin while pretending uh, to know you. Lord, we pray that none of us would turn away from the gospel, but that all of us would dig deeper into the truth of the gospel and to your great and precious promises in Jesus, so that we might see the glory of the gospel and your goodness in Jesus, and so that your great gospel power in Jesus might work its way out in our life, being crucified with him and raised up with him by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.